Welcome to Galveston Unscripted. My only point is that this history has been ever-present and being celebrated. It is just now on a national platform where everyone is learning about it. And suddenly everybody was interested in what happened at the parking lot in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865. Juneteenth celebrates the evolution of our country to a more perfect union. Last year in 2021, on June 17th, President Biden signed into law making Juneteenth a national holiday. Now, the thing that I say often is Juneteenth has always been important to the former enslaved and their descendants, and it has been celebrated since June 19th, 1865. It became more popular in 2020, and then this snowball effect of the popularity led to uh, the national holiday, even though there had been a national group formed in 1994 Uh, the National Juneteenth Observance Foundation. They had been working for 26, 27 years before it became very popular. And last year, of course, uh, led by the grandmother of Juneteenth, Miss Opal Lee, uh, who's uh, 95 now. I think she's come to Galveston twice. We invited her in September of 2019 before Juneteenth really became popular. Uh, She had started a a petition. Uh, That petition... um, had maybe 8,000 to 10,000 signatures mm-hmm. before the unfortunate events of George Floyd, which led to uh, this awakening of consciousness around certain uh, issues. And then uh, her petition took off and reached 1.5 million signatures, wow. which she eventually delivered uh, to Washington, D.C. But there have been many individuals working along the way uh, that are less known, uh, mm-hmm. Reverend James B. Thomas, uh, local uh, activist, uh, politician, minister, father, uncle, cousin, brother, you yeah, know, yeah, all yeah. Uh, all those things. He, he really pushed to get Juneteenth recognized here locally in uh, the 1970s when he mm-hmm. couldn't get support here. Uh, from elected officials, uh, he eventually uh, started working with Representative Al Edwards. Representative Al Edwards then was able to get Texas to recognize Juneteenth as a state holiday in 1979. And the thing about that is 100 years before that, uh, Robert Evans, state representative, had introduced a bill to make Juneteenth a state holiday, but it failed. So, My only point is that this history has been ever present and being celebrated. It is just now on a national platform where everyone is learning about it. And it's important that we tell the full story and tell uh, what happened here in Galveston that Mm -hmm. changed the lives of not only the enslaved, but the enslavers also and all involved. Uh, It was not perfect. Uh, I often quote that. Juneteenth celebrates the evolution of our country to a more perfect union. We were not perfect in 1528, in 1619, 1776, 1865, 2020, 2021, or even today, we're not a perfect union, but hopefully we're moving towards that more perfect union in which we will see absolute equality, in which every individual will have an equal opportunity to develop and become their very best self, 
without hurdles or barriers being placed in front of them to hinder their growth or development. Because as we become better individuals, we become better families, better neighborhoods, better communities, better cities, counties, states, country, and hopefully a better world. The absolute equality mural that was completed by artist Reginald Adams and the uh, team, the creatives, uh, Kadavian Baylor, Joshua Bennett, Dentrell Boone, Samson Adenube, and Cherry Meekins were a part of that team. And then also uh, prior to the mural being placed uh, uh, at that location, we had a sketch done by a young artist named Chase Sampe. And this is uh, an important piece of the story. She's a young artist, and she did the actual first sketch of Granger seated at a table with the uh, soldiers standing, many of them being United States colored troops. And that was the, the central part of the, the project. And then we were, we expanded from there to incorporate other pieces of the story. Major Frederick Emery is actually the individual that wrote and signed General Order Number Three. So when individuals visit the mural, they will notice that Granger is seated at the desk signing General Order Number One. And many individuals question, well, wasn't it General Order Number Three that freed enslaved people? And that is true. So the uh, image that Chase Sampe painted after doing her initial sketch actually has Granger and Emery in it. And I think it's the first painting to ever capture this part of the story in which Emery is seated at the desk writing General Order Number 3 and signing it. General Granger was, of course, in charge of the state, uh, state of Texas and the soldiers. So he uh, gave the order to Emory to to write it. But Granger had received those orders from Philip Sheridan. Uh, most of that language was already, uh, according to a book, uh, Juneteenth, written by Ed Cotham. Finally got around to writing what turned out to be the first scholarly book on the history behind Juneteenth. Uh, he, he did a lot of research and, and found that. Other general orders have been written with some of the same language, except that middle part, the second sentence, where it says this involves an absolute quality. Most of it had been written either by General Phil Sheridan in New Orleans or his young clerk, staff officer named Frederick Emery, who was a, a basically a, an anti-slavery abolitionist newspaper editor from Kansas and who had been very clever and inserted this great sentence in the Juneteenth order about the importance of absolute equality. And this is where we get the language for the title of the mural and also this subject matter of what is absolute equality, not equal results. But as I stated, it is the equal opportunity to become and develop into your very best self without hurdles or barriers in place. So Emory is a very big part of the story that has been left out. Um, again, you could uh, find Ed Cotham's book on Juneteenth. And as just dumb luck would have it, we released that book at the beginning of May of 2021. A month before Juneteenth was declared a national holiday. So his time, he had been working on it, I think, 10 years wow. or, uh, or longer. And it actually came out right before Juneteenth became a national holiday. Wow. So talking about timing. But, I, you know, I always used to take people on tours of of uh, Galveston. Yeah, I've probably given more tours of Civil War battlefields in Texas than anybody ever. And I always used to take them by this parking lot down at the corner of 22nd and Strand. And I would say, here's something really remarkable happened. And I would say, this 
is the ground zero origination point of Juneteenth. And many years ago, people would say, June what? Because um, most people on these tours, particularly, you know, most people that were that were white on these tours had not heard of that or were not really familiar with the whole concept. And I used to take them there and said, you know, this is something important, but there was it's a parking lot today. There was no sign. There was no historic marker. There was nothing there. But it was really, really important. I tried to explain the significance of that site. And I've been keeping notes on that for uh, really more than 40 years, I guess, and finally got around to, to writing uh, what turned out to be the first scholarly book on the history behind Juneteenth. And as just dumb luck would have it, we released that book about a month before Juneteenth was declared a national holiday. And suddenly everybody was interested in what happened at the parking lot in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865. And suddenly everybody wanted to know how to, how to visit Galveston and see this important part of history and what were we doing to preserve it. And we're still kind of going through the, the growing pains of how to, to, to really make that history available in a way that people can understand it and appreciate it and enjoy it without you know making it commercial or turning it in, into something it shouldn't be. Can you tell us a little bit about your research into uh, Juneteenth in general? Juneteenth was an interesting subject to research because, again, the people that were the most affected by it, uh, the black inhabitants of, of Texas, really didn't keep diaries, didn't write a lot of letters. What we do have from those people is interviews that were recorded in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, they're called the Slave Narrative Project. They're mainly in the Library of Congress. And you can... You can research those, and you can find uh, those accounts, and I, I've read hundreds of them, of course, uh, and, and it's really interesting to do that. And, and then you can go back through the newspapers. You can go back through the diaries and letters of the officers and, and military people that were here. But trying to recreate that was, was very complex. And, and what made it particularly challenging for me was that there was this whole mythology about Juneteenth that I had to dismantle kind of brick by brick before assembling the history in a way that we could rely on. Because every year there had been this thing that was printed in the newspaper that General Gordon Granger had come here on June 19th and had gone up on a balcony and read either the Emancipation Proclamation or some said this General Orders Number 3 to all these assembled people, including a number of newly freed, uh, freed enslaved people, and if this would, had been a very big secret, and they were suddenly surprised to learn uh, that they were now free. And the truth was that General Granger had almost nothing to do with the Juneteenth order, that he had not read it from the balcony. We have no contemporary evidence that that would have happened. We had very few uh, enslaved people who had been freed in Galveston, Texas, on June 19th of 1865, and that instead what happened was he arrived, he uh, went to this uh, uh, his headquarters, which was, again, at 22nd Strand at the Osterman Building, a building that no longer stands, and he had issued this order, but most of it had been written either by General Phil Sheridan in New Orleans or his young clerk, uh, a staff officer named Frederick Emery, who was a, a basically a, an anti-slavery abolitionist newspaper editor from Kansas who had been very clever and inserted this great sentence in the Juneteenth order about the importance of absolute equality. And this is what had happened, and this had been issued. It, it had very little 
press coverage at the time. It, was, it wasn't considered all that groundbreaking at the time, but because of the unusual way in which it was composed, it, it became something that was featured in newspapers all around the country. And in particular, it ran in newspapers in Texas for months afterwards, the entire series of general orders. And because it said uh, that the freed people were supposed to stay where they were and continued working, it was actually read to uh, groups of you know freed people by their former owners and their overseers. And years later, when I would pick up these, these uh, narratives by the people that had been freed, they all said something about it. They could remember it as though it was yesterday, the day that the freedom paper was read to them. The Freedom Paper. And sometimes they called it the Long Paper. Sometimes they called it the Freedom Paper. But I kept struggling with what that was. And then finally I figured out that it was, in fact, the Juneteenth order that was being read to them. And in fact, that's why they ended up as a kind of a collective thing deciding to commemorate emancipation on the day that the Freedom Paper originated, which was June 19th, 1865, the original Juneteenth in Galveston, Texas. So that's how the word was uh, originally spread, and I guess the most efficient way to spread it was by the newspaper. Uh, it was spread by way of newspaper, and it was also spread by way of handbills. Now, these handbills, you know, were posted and sent out, and, and you know, cavalry riders would take them around and read them and post them and everything. We still have one of these that I know of. It's in the collection of the Dallas Historical Society. It's a remarkable thing. But that's the way it was spread. It wasn't spread by people reading it from balconies. That was not really a good way to spread it because, again, most of the uh, black people that would have been affected by this order in terms of being freed, they didn't live in, in Galveston. They lived primarily in rural areas. Galveston had the entirety of Galveston County, not not the city, the entire county had less than 0.6% of the uh, freed people in Texas. Thank you for listening to Galveston Unscripted, your audio guide to the world's largest free museum, Galveston Island. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Galveston Unscripted. And please follow us on social media. We are literally everywhere. Just check out the description below. Thank you so, so much, and we'll see you next time on Galveston Unscripted. The other important thing, the reason I think everyone should buy uh, Ed's book is because there's a wonderful picture of me in it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> For historic resources or more information, check out the episode description. <laughs>